0: Chapter Seventeen of The Rough Road by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Seventeen. How are you feeling, Trevor? Nicely, thank you, sister. Glad to be in Blighty again? Doggy smiled. Good old Blighty. Leg hurting you? A bit, sister, he replied with a little grimace. It's bound to be stiff after the long journey, but we'll soon fix it up for you. "'I'm sure you will,' he said politely. "'The nurse moved on. "'Doggy drew the cool, clean sheet around his shoulders "'and gave himself up to the luxury of bed—real bed. "'The morning sunlight poured through the open windows, "'attended by a delicious odour, "'which after a while he recognised as the scent of the sea. "'Where he was he had no notion. "'He had absorbed so much of Tommy's philosophy as not to care.' He had arrived with a convoy the night before, after much travel in ambulances by land and sea. If he had been a walking-case he might have taken more interest in things, but the sniper's bullet in his thigh had touched the bone, and in spite of being carried most tenderly about like a baby, he had suffered great pain, and longed for nothing, and thought of nothing but a permanent resting-place. Now apparently he had found one, and, looking about him, he felt peculiarly content. "'He seemed to have seen no cleaner, whiter, brighter place in the world "'than this airy ward swept by the sea-breeze. "'He counted seven beds besides his own. "'On a table running down the ward stood a vase of sweet peas and a bowl of roses. "'He thought there was never in the world so clean and cool a figure "'as the grey-clad nurse in her spotless white apron, cuffs and cap. "'When she passed near him again, he summoned her. "'She came to his bedside.' What do you call this particular region of Fairyland? She stared at him for a moment, adjusting things in her mind, for his name and style were 35792 Private Trevor J.M., but his voice and phrase were those of her own social class. Then she smiled and told him. The corner of Fairyland was a private auxiliary hospital in a Lancashire seaside town. Lancashire, said Doggy, knitting his brow in a puzzled way. "'But why have they sent me to Lancashire? "'I belong to a West Country regiment, "'and all my friends are in the South.' "'What's he grousing about, sister?' "'Suddenly asked the occupant of the next bed. "'He's the sort of chap that doesn't know "'when he's in luck and when he isn't. "'I'm in the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, I am, "'and when I was hit before, "'they sent me to a military hospital in Inverness. "'That'll teach you, my lad. This for me every time. "'You ought to have something to grouse at.' "'I'm not grousing, you idiot,' said Doggy. "'Yeah, who's he calling an idiot?' cried the Duke of Cornwall's light infantryman, raising himself on his elbow. The nurse intervened. explained that no one could be said to grumble at a hospital when he called it Fairyland. Trevor's question was that of one in search of information. He did not realise that in assigning men to the various hospitals in the United Kingdom, the authorities could not possibly take into account an individual man's local association. "'Oh, well, if it's only his blooming ignorance!' "'That's just it, mate.' Smiled Doggy, my blooming ignorance. That's all right, said the nurse. Now you're friends. You've no right to call me an idiot, said the Duke of Cornwall's light infantryman. He was an aggressive, red visaged man with bristly black hair and stubbly black moustache. If you'll agree that he wasn't grousing, Penworthy, I'm sure Trevor will apologise for calling you an idiot. And into the nurse's eyes crept the queer smile of the woman learned in the ways of children. "'Didn't I say he wasn't grousing? It was only his ignorance?' Doggy responded, "'I meant no offence, mate, in what I said.' The other growled an acceptance, whereupon the nurse smiled an ironic benediction and moved away. "'Where did you get it?' asked Penworthy. Doggy gave the information, and in his turn made the polite counter inquiry. Penworthy's bit of shrapnel, which had broken a rib or two, had been acquired just north of Albert. When he left, he said, we were putting it over in great quantities. "'That's where the great push is going to be in a few days.' "'Aren't you sorry you're out of it?' "'Me?' The Duke of Cornwall's light infantryman shook his head. "'I take things as I finds them, and I find this quite good enough.' So they chatted, and in the soldier's way became friends. Later the surgeon arrived and probed Doggy's wound and hurt him exquisitely, so that the perspiration stood out on his forehead, and his jaws ached afterwards from his clenching of them. While his leg was being dressed, he reflected that, a couple of years ago, if any one had inflicted a twentieth part of such torture on him, he would have yelled the house down. He remembered, with an inward grin, the anguished precautions on which he had insisted whenever he sat down in the chair of his expensive London dentist. "'It must have hurt like fun,' said the nurse, busily engaged with the gauze dressing. "'It's all in the day's work,' replied Doggy. The nurse pinned the bandage, and settled him comfortably in bed. "'No one will worry you till dinner-time. You'd better try to have a sleep.' So Doggy nodded, and smiled, and curled up as best he could, and slept the heavy sleep of the tired young animal. It was only when he awoke, physically wasted and comparatively free from pain, that his mind, hitherto confused, began to work clearly to straighten out the three days' tangle. Yes, just three days, a fact almost impossible to realise, till now it had seemed an eternity. He lay with his arms crossed under his head and stared at the blue sky, a soft, comforting English sky. The ward was silent. Only two beds were occupied, one by a man asleep, the other by a man reading a novel. His other roommates, including his neighbour Penworthy, were so far convalescent as to be up and away, presumably by the life-giving sea, whose rhythmic murmur he could hear. For the first time since he awoke to find himself bandaged up in a strange dugout and surrounded by strange faces, did the chaos of his ideas resolve itself into anything like definite memories? Yet many of them were still vague. He'd been out there with the wiring party in the dark. He had been glad, he remembered, to escape from the prison of the trench into the open air. He was having some difficulty with a recalcitrant bit of wire that refused to come straight and jabbed him diabolically in unexpected places, when a shot rang out and German flares went up and everybody lay flat on the ground while bullets spat about them. As he lay on his stomach, a flare lit up the ruined well of the farm of La Follette, and the well and his nose and his heels were in a bee The realisation of the fact was the inception of a fascinating idea. He remembered that quite clearly. Of course his discovery, two days before, of the spot where Jean's fortune lay hidden, when Captain Willoughby, with map and periscope, had called him into consultation, had set his heart beating and his imagination working. But not till that moment of stark opportunity had he dreamed of the mad adventure which he undertook. There, in front of him, at the very farthest three hundred yards away, in beeline with nose and heels, that was the peculiar and arresting fact, Lejeune's fortune. In thinking of it, he lost count of shots and star-shells, and heard no orders, and saw no dim forms creeping back to the safety of the trench, and then all was darkness and silence. Doggy lay on his back and stared at the English sky, and wondered how he did it. His attitude was that of a man who cannot reconcile his sober self with the idiot hero of a drunken freak. And yet, at the time, the journey to the ruined well seemed the simplest thing in the world. The thought of Jean's delight shone uppermost in his mind. Oh, he was forgetting the star, which hung low beneath a canopy of cloud, the extreme point of the famous feet, nose, and well, bee-line. He made for it, now and then walking low, now and then crawling. He did not mind his clothes and hands being torn by the unseen refuse of no man's land. His chief sensation was one of utter loneliness, mingled with exultance at freedom. He did not remember feeling afraid, which was odd, because when the star-shells had gone up and the German trenches had opened fire on the wiring-party, his blood had turned to water and his heart had sunk into his boots and he had been deucedly frightened. Heaven must have guided him straight to the well he had known all along that he merely would have to stick his hand down to find the rope, and he felt no surprise when the rope actually came in contact with his groping fingers. No surprise when he pulled and pulled and fished up the packet. It had all been preordained. That was the funny part of the business, which Doggy now could not understand. But he remembered that, when he had buttoned his tunic over the precious packet, he'd been possessed of an insane desire to sing and dance. He repressed his desire to sing, but he leaped about and started to run. Then the star in which he trusted must have betrayed him. It must have shed upon him a ray just strong enough to make him a visible object, for suddenly ping! something hit him violently on the leg and bowled him over like a rabbit into a providential shell-hole. And there he lay quaking for a long time, while the lunacy of his adventure coarsely and unsentimentally revealed itself. As to the rest, he was in a state of befogged memory. Only one incident in that endless, cruel, crawl home remained as a landmark in his mind. He paused to take breath, almost ready to give up the impossible flight. It seemed as though he were dragging behind him a ton of red-hot iron. When he became conscious of a stench violent in his nostrils, he put out a hand. It encountered a horrible, once-human face, and his fingers touched a round, recognisable cap. Horror drove him away from the dead German, and inspired him with the strength of despair. Then all was fog and dark again, until he recovered consciousness in the strange dugout. Then the doctor had said to him, "'You must have a cast iron constitution, my lad.' The memory caused a flicker round his lips, It wasn't everybody who could crawl on his belly for nearly a quarter of a mile with a bullet through his leg, and come up smiling at the end of it. A cast-iron constitution. If he'd only known it fifteen, even ten years ago, what a different life he might have led. The great disgrace would never have come upon him. And Jean, what of Jean? After he had told his story, they had given him to understand— that an officer would be sent to Frelu to corroborate it, and, if he found it true, that Jean would enter into possession of her packet. And that was all he knew, for they had bundled him out of the front trenches as quickly as possible, and once out he had become a case, a stretcher case, although he had been treated as a case with almost superhuman tenderness, not a soul regarded him as a human being with a personality or a history, not even with a military history and this same military history had vaguely worried him all the time, and now that he could think clearly, worried him with a very definite worry. In leaving his firing party he had been guilty of a crime. Every misdemeanour in the army is termed a crime, from murder to appearing buttonless on parade. Was it desertion? If so, he might be shot. He had not thought of that when he started on his quest. It had seemed so simple to account for half an hour's absence by saying that he had lost his way in the dark. But now that plausible excuse was invalid. Doggy thought terribly hard that quiet, sea scented morning. After all, it did not very much matter what they did to him. Sticking him up against the wall and shooting him was a remote possibility. He was in the British and not the German army. Few punishments of unpleasant kinds were only inflicted on people convictive of unpleasant delinquencies. If he were a sergeant or a corporal, he doubtless would be broken. But such is the fortunate position of a private that it cannot be degraded to an inferior rank. At the worst they might give him cells when he recovered. Well, he could stick it. It didn't matter. What really mattered was Jean. Was she in undisputed possession of her packet? When it was a question of practical warfare Doggy had blind faith in his officers, a faith perhaps even more childlike than that of his fellow privates. For officers were the men who had come through the ordeal in which he had so lamentably failed. But when it came to administrative affairs, he was more critical. He had suffered during his military career from more than one subaltern on whose arid consciousness the brain-wave never beat. He had never met even a field-officer before, whom, in the realm of intellect, he had stood in awe. If any one of those dimly envisaged and still more dimly remembered officers of the Lancashire Fusiliers had ordered him to stand on his head on top of the parapet, he would have obeyed in cheerful confidence. But he was not at all certain that, in the effort to deliver the package to Jean, they would not make an unholy mess of things. He saw stacks of dirty yellowish bits of paper, with A.F. number something or other, floating between Threlou and the Lancashire Battalion HQ, and the Brigade HQ, and the Divisional HQ, and so on through the majesty of GHQ to the awful war office itself. In pessimistic mood he thought that if Jean recovered her property within a year she would be lucky. What a wonderful creature was Jean! He shut his eyes to the blue sky, and pictured her as she stood in the light on the ragged escarpment, with her garments beaten by wind and rain, and he remembered the weary thud, thud, of railway and steamer, which had resolved itself, like the rhythmic tramp of feet that night, into the ceaseless refrain, Jean, Jean. He opened his eyes again, and frowned at the blue English sky. It had no business to proclaim simple serenity, when his mind was in such a state of complex tangle. It was all very well to think of Jean, Jean, whom it was unlikely that fate would ever allow him to see again, even supposing the war ended during his lifetime. But there was Peggy. Peggy, his future wife, who had stuck to him loyally through good and evil repute. Yes, there was Peggy, not the faintest shadow of doubt about it. Doggy kept on frowning at the blue sky. Blighty was a very desirable country, but in it you were compelled to think.' an enforced thought was an infernal nuisance. The beastly trenches had their good points after all. There you were not called upon to think of anything. The less, you thought, the better for your job. You just ate your bully-beef and drank your tea and cursed whizzbangs bangs and killed a rat or two and thanked God you were alive. Now that he came to look at it in proper perspective, it wasn't at all a bad life. When had he been worried to death as he was now? and there were his friends. The humorous, genial, debauched, yet ever kindly Phineas. Dear old Moe Shendish, whose material feet were hankering after the vulgar pavement of Mare Street, Hackney, but whose spiritual tread rang on golden floors dimly imagined by the seer of Patmos. Barrett, the DCM, the miniature Hercules, who, according to legend, though modestly he would never own to it, seized two boches by the neck and knocked their heads together till they died, and who, musically inclined, would sit at his doggie's, feet while he played on his penny whistle all the sentimental tunes he had ever heard of. Sergeant Bellinghall, a tire of a man, a champion amateur heavyweight boxer, with a voice compared with which a megaphone sounded like a maiden's prayer, and a Bardolphian nose, and an eagle eye, and the heart of a broody hen, who had not only given him boxing lessons, but had pulled him through difficult places innumerable and scores of others. He wondered what they were doing. He also was foolish enough to wonder whether they missed him, forgetting for the moment that if a regiment took seriously to missing their comrades sent to Kingdom Come or Blighty, they would be more like weeping willows than destroyers of Huns. All the same, he knew that he would always live in the hearts of two or three of them, and the knowledge brought him considerable comfort, "'It was strange to realise how the tentacles of his being stretched out gropingly towards these, from the old Durdlebury point of view, impossible friends. "'They had grafted themselves onto his life. "'Or was that a correct way of putting it? "'Had they not rather all grafted themselves onto a common stock of life, "'so that the one common sap ran through all their veins?' "'It took him a long time to get this idea formulated.' fixed and accepted. But Doggy was not one to boggle at the truth as he saw it. And this was the truth. He, James, Marmaduke, Trevor of Demby Hall, was a Tommy of the Tommies. He had lived the Tommy life intensely. He was living it now. And the extraordinary part of it was that he didn't want to be anything else but a Tommy. From the social or gregarious point of view, His life for the past year had been one of unclouded happiness. The realisation of it, now that he was clearly sizing up the ramshackle thing which he called his existence, hit him like the butt-end of a rifle. Hardship, cold, hunger, fatigue, stench, rats, the dread of inefficiency. All these had been factors of misery which he could never eliminate from his soldier's equation but such free, joyous, intimate companionship with real human beings he had never enjoyed since he was born. He longed to be back among them, doing the same old weary, dreary things, eating the same old Robinson Crusoe kind of food, crouching with them in the same old beastly hole in the ground, while the Bosch let loose hell on the trench. Moe his grin, and his, "'Ear, getting out of the rain!' and his grip on his shoulder dragging him a few inches farther into shelter, were a spiritual compensation transcending physical discomfiture and perils. 'It's "'It's all damn funny,' he said half-aloud. But this was England, and although he was hedged about, protected and restricted by war-office regulation red tape, twisted round to the strength of steel cables, yet he was in command of telegraphs, of telephones, and in a secondary degree of the railway system of the United Kingdom. He found himself deprecating the compulsory facilities of communication in the civilised world. The deanery must be informed of his homecoming. As soon as he could secure the service of a nurse, he wrote out three telegrams, one addressed Conover, the deanery, Durdlebury, one to Peddle at Denby Hall, and one to Jean. The one to Jean was the longest, and was reply-paid. This is going to cost a small fortune, young man, said the nurse. Doggy smiled, as he drew out a one pound treasury note from his soldier's pocket book, the pathetic object containing a form of will on the right hand flap, and on the left the directions for the making of the will, concluding with the world famous typical signature of Thomas Atkins. It's a bust, sister, said he. I've been saving up for it for months. Then, duly accomplished, He reconciled himself to the corner of Fairyland in which he had awoke that morning. Things must take their course, and while they were taking it, why worry? So long as they didn't commit the outrage of giving him bully-beef for dinner, the present coolness and comfort sufficed for his happiness. End of chapter 17